one of the funniest parts about being a parent, especially when the kids are young, is watching them try to get away with stuff. I mean, if, if you've ever gone to like a three-year-old and said, did you eat that ice cream? And they say, no. And of course, there's ice cream everywhere. It's all over their face. Did you get into those markers? No. And they've got marker all over their body or all over the couch. You know, it's only when we get older that we, we become more sophisticated in how we conceal evidence of our wrongdoing. But it's great with kids because typically it's just right there in front of us. The evidence is, is plain to see. Well, y'all, as we look today at 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle John is going to deal with a fundamental question of Christianity, something that we all, at least periodically, ought to come to and assess for ourselves. How do I know that I'm really a Christian? Or you might say, what evidence is there? Is the evidence plain to see that I am in, in genuine relationship with God? Now, even as I ask that question out loud, I don't like it. I don't like to be put under the microscope, usually because I'm afraid of what I might <laughs> see. It's uncomfortable, maybe even a little scary. But I want to assure us that as John writes in chapter 2, what we're going to see today, John's desire is not to shame us or condemn us or to bring us into some form of, of fearful obsession as to whether we're measuring up. No, John's desire is to show us with clarity what it really means to be a Christian and the good fruit that comes as we know and love Jesus. Ultimately, this is meant to be an encouragement, a sharpening thing for us and something that we're, we're just called to do, to look into the mirror and ask the question. John does it here. Paul says it elsewhere that we examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Peter says, make certain about God's calling and choosing of you as you look at your qualities, your attributes of Christian living. We're meant to look in the mirror and ask the question. And so my hope today as we look at John's words is that we will be stirred to clarify not just what Christianity is, but the effect that it has in producing God's desire for a transformed life in us. And we'll see it very plainly as we go. Look with me at 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. We're only going to look at a handful of verses in this portion of the scripture, but they're power-packed. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know Christ if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps Jesus' words, in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in Christ. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. That scripture may have just put a lump in your throat, and I want to say it's meant to. This, this is a scripture that's meant to humble us to the ground and pierce us to the heart as we consider what it really means, what the evidence or the fruit really looks like of genuine faith. And it may be that we've just read this and thought, oh my word, how could anybody attain to that? 
I mean, what we just saw, that, that if you abide in Christ, you ought to walk in the same manner that he walked. Is anybody able to pass that test? Um, well, let's take a, a closer look at what John is telling us. And to do that, I also want to give us up front a little bit of context here. As the Apostle John, who is now an old man, is writing to the church, he's writing in part to combat false teaching that was taking root and infiltrating the churches. There were false teachers who were uh, what we call Gnostics. They were sharing uh, a belief that we call Gnosticism. And here's how it went. The Gnostics were preaching a false view of Jesus that said uh, Jesus was not uh, physically human because physical things are bad and wrong and evil and we should detach ourselves and live in the spiritual only. So Gnosticism was this, it's, it was this claim to have a secret special spiritual knowledge that rises above everybody and everything else. And if you're really lucky, you can attain to this secret knowledge along with us. So no, Jesus never came in the flesh as a human being. And certainly Jesus never died on the cross and actually shed his blood for sins. That's what the Gnostics taught. And so when it came to sin itself, sin, they said, is just something you kind of do in your physical body. It's a physical, earthly kind of thing. But we're spiritual people. So it doesn't matter what you do physically you still can live above all of that and rise above all that spiritually. It may seem like a strange belief, but it was a very prominent heresy or false teaching in the early days of the New Testament. Now, what does John say in response to all that? Does he say, interesting theory, tell me more? <laughs> no, John comes in uh, with gritted teeth, and he calls it Antichrist. That's, what, that's the term he uses for those who have made themselves enemies of Christ by preaching a different gospel. And here in 1 John, we see it come up time and again. John gives little diagnostic tests along the way to show us the difference between genuine Christianity and the falsehood that's being spread in an effort to discredit Christ. And so these diagnostic tests are meant to show us not only what Christianity really teaches, but also what it means to live it out. Let me give you an example from chapter 1, and this is going to help build into what we're looking at today. John says in 1 John chapter 1, he gives two tests here. See what they are. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as Jesus himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. So right off the bat, John gives us two essential tests as to what it really means to be a Christian. One, it's the acknowledgement, the confession that we are sinners in need of cleansing. 
If you say you have no sin, you make God out to be a liar. But then secondly, uh, having been saved and cleansed, we now walk or we live in the light of Jesus and no longer in the darkness. If we continue to walk in the darkness, we show that we have not come into the light, that we don't know Christ. Now, with that background, let's take a look again at our scripture today from chapter 2, because here's another diagnostic test. Verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know Christ. Here is our confidence that we've really come into relationship with Jesus. And what is it? If we keep his commandments. Very simple. If we do what Jesus says. And of course, John, as he often does, he, he's sure here to, to show us the alternative, to affirm the opposite. If someone says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, he is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And so up, up to this point, there's really, there shouldn't be any controversy or really any confusion here. All John is doing is echoing something that Jesus often said. If you love me, you will obey what I command. If you love me, if you follow me, if you call me Lord, you'll do what I say. And so this is the evidence of true Christian faith in my life and yours, obedience to Christ. Now the problem that John points out is a problem that has not gone away. It's still here today. It's this belief that says, I can know Jesus, I can believe in Jesus without obeying him. I can have the salvation of God without any um, uh, responding activity on, on my part, with any evidence or fruit to show for it. Um, in, in that case, we, ha we have a belief in God that is uh, it's disembodied. It says, I can be a Christian without any transformation of my thoughts or my desires or decisions or behavior. And John calls this a lie. It's not an alternate route to get to the same destination. It is a lie, and it makes the difference between life and death. The person who says, I, I have known Jesus, I, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, and does not obey his commands, John says that person does not have the truth in them. They are not a Christian, regardless of what they say. Because it assumes, y'all, that we can have God without God having us. That I can take God's salvation and enjoy it, and God does not get me in the process. And of course, that assumption's wrong to begin with because we belong to God in the first place. Everything we are belongs to him and is owed to him. You cannot have God in the abstract without living a life that corresponds to him and obeys him. The, the Bible just never gives us that, that option, that category. Instead, we see it in verse 5. Whoever keeps Jesus' word... In him, the love of God has truly been perfected. And so John, you see what John is saying? It's not simply about knowing Jesus. That's the first term he gives us. It's also about loving God. We can say we know something or someone in the abstract, um, but we can't love someone without being close to them. We can't love a person truly without there being proximity, without there being genuineness of relationship. So to know Jesus 
John says, is to love him. And when it says that the love of God is perfected in us, what does that mean? Does that mean that you can have a perfect love for God without defect? No, here's the idea is that there is a maturing love for God, that there's a fulfilling that's taking place, that we're more and more, we're increasingly reaching the goal for which God created us. And John's point here is that as we keep Jesus' words, as we obey him from the heart, our love for God is intensifying. We're getting closer and closer to who God created us and called us to be. Isn't that an awesome picture? That, we, that God doesn't just save us and leave us where we are, but that we can know Christ in such a way that our love for God grows as we walk with him, as we obey him. The good fruit is increasing as we come to know and love God more deeply. So here's the summary up to this point. And it's almost so simple that it's absurd. It's simple. How do I know that I really know and love Jesus? The evidence is in my obedience, in your obedience. Now, I want to make a, a, a huge point of clarification here, because I know, at least for me, I'm prone to get things out of order. And so we, I've, I say this as often as I possibly can. Your obedience to God is not the cause of your salvation. It's the effect. Remember, John is talking about evidence here, or fruit. You don't become a Christian by keeping the rules and being good. Your obedience is not what gets you to God. No, we receive salvation as a gift. Salvation comes because God brings it to us through his son, Jesus Christ. It must be received. It cannot be achieved. And so when we talk about obedience, obedience is not the means by which we achieve our salvation. No, we are saved by grace. And obedience is what shows forth that salvation. Obedience is the good fruit. It's the outcome of what God has done. Loving obedience to Christ gives evidence of what God has done for us. It is not what we do for God in order to earn something from him. We can't afford to get that out of order or we, we, the whole thing comes tumbling down. And so obedience is the fruit. It's the evidence, right? And how do we apply this? Because if I'm thinking, okay, I'm supposed to obey Christ, what did he say? I mean, he gave us a lot of commands. Where do I start? Let, just, just for the sake of today, because we're already in 1 John, there's one particular command that John really harps on. It's clearly important to him. It's of utmost importance. And it's the command that Jesus gave us to love one another. We find that back in John 13. John records it. Jesus said it. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you love one another. For by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, by the love you have for one another. We hear it ringing in Jesus' words there, how, how absolutely essential love is to our discipleship, to love Christ as he has loved, to love others as Christ has loved us. Well, look at how John puts the pieces together. This is 1 John 4. Look at how he, he takes this command and unites it with the diagnostic test. Again, this is 
1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, that is a, a fellow believer, a brother or sister in the faith. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from Christ, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. We love, John says, because God first loved us, right? This is a statement of the order of salvation. God loved me first. You and I, we have received the love of God poured out within our hearts through his son, Jesus Christ. That means we have received eternal, supreme love. God could do no better than what he's already done for us. Okay, well then how do we respond to such a love? We love others. Do we love God? Well, of course we love God, and that's a given. But in this case, it's not just that we return the favor, I love God in return, but now that love that we've received becomes the love that we live by. I love others now as Jesus has loved me. This is the evidence of having received God's love is that we are filled with love for one another. And if not, again, John affirms the opposite. If not... If I don't love my fellow brothers and sisters in the faith, what evidence is there that I have actually received God's love? What evidence is there that I've truly come to know Christ? See, from John's perspective, it doesn't matter what we say. He, he's, we've seen it multiple times now. No matter what I say, I can say I love God. I can say I've come to know him. But if the fruit, if the evidence is not present, John says, I'm a liar. I'm saying something that is not demonstrably true of how I live. It's the evidence that ultimately tells the story, not the lip service. If we have received the love of God by faith, then we will most certainly display the love of God in the world. And that's one form of application here as to loving obedience to Jesus. It's the evidence here. It shows up in how I live. It's concrete. It's not abstract. It's real. Now, just in case we haven't been sufficiently humbled, <laughs> uh, let's, let's finish what we started by looking at verses 5 and 6. By this we know that we are in Christ. The one who says he abides in Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. Now, what exactly is John saying right there? Um, because I, I read that, maybe you read that, and just despair comes flooding in. Why even get out of bed in the morning if that's really the bar that we're meant to, to attain to? To be just like Christ? Well, here's, here's what I know John is not saying. He's not saying that you and I are meant to live in sinless perfection or miraculous activity as if we're meant to go out just like Jesus and walk on water and multiply food and live with perfect righteousness. Um, that's not, there, there are certain things about Jesus that are unique to Jesus that no one else gets to do. Right? Uh, nothing's going to change that. There's nobody that can rise up to his level, and we're not meant to. But what does it mean to say that we're, we're to walk in the same manner as he walked? Well, let me, let me give a, a, a snapshot here. 
of what I think John is saying. Um, we're not sinlessly perfect. We're not miraculously uh, uh, endowed with, with uh, you know, divinity like Jesus. No, we're human. But can we walk as he walked? Think about how Jesus actually lived. Because he tells us this, and we see it on display. Jesus lived always in dependence on the Father. Jesus lived always in devotion to the Father. He said, I only do what I see my Father in heaven doing. He was dependent, he was devoted. Jesus was always obedient to the Father in righteousness. And of course, Jesus was extravagant in his love for us, for others, both his friends and his enemies, both Jews and Gentiles. Jesus loved sacrificially. He gave himself in love. Now, again, none of us live up to Jesus' standard perfectly, but if we think about how he lived, in devotion, in dependence, in obedience, in love, it is absolutely true that you and I can and should live according to that same pattern, to walk as Jesus walked, knowing that we're fallible, knowing that we'll never live up to Jesus' standard perfectly. Okay, we get that out of the way. That's not the bar. But we are called, if we truly know him, we're called to walk in dependence and devotion and obedience and love. Now, there's more than just that, of course, but, but as a snapshot, would that not bring transformation to your life and mine? If we patterned our hearts, our minds, our decisions, our words, our behaviors in that way? That's how Jesus lived, and we're meant to follow in his steps. Okay. Now, let me, let me state the obvious here. Nobody can read a scripture like this and come out clean on the other side. Nobody smiles their way through 1 John chapter 2 and says, okay, well, what else? Is that all? No, we are humbled, and we should be. John's desire in this scripture is not to, to boost our self-esteem and tell us how great we are. His desire is to show us that true Christianity is concrete. It's not abstract. You can't just know and love God in word only. We can't just think good thoughts or rearrange the things that we don't like and make our own religion instead. That's, that's, that's all false. That's what John was combating and fighting against. He says, no, the real thing, the real Jesus, when we come to know him, there is a life-transforming new reality that takes place. It really changes us. He really changes us. And that's why we're meant to examine ourselves is that change taking place? Is that transformation occurring? Even if it's slow, and even if we fumble our way through it, and we surely do, is it there? Has our heart changed? Has our, have our affections changed? Have our desires begun to be transformed? That's the evidence we're meant to look for, and we're meant to do it humbly. And so I, I just, I, I want to pose this as a question for us, and I hate to do it through a camera through a screen but I, as you as you hear my voice as you see my face I, I want I want you to hear this question and, and we're all meant to just consider it if I don't see this evidence this fruit present in my life is it possible that I have not yet come to know Christ It may be offensive to even ask the question, okay? 
No, I don't like anybody challenging me. I don't like anybody doubting me. But this is what the scripture is calling us to do, to ask the question. If the fruit, if the evidence is not there, what does that say about my relationship with God? Y'all, this was absolutely true of me at one time in my life. I'll just tell you without, without any hesitation, this is who I was. I believed in God and in Jesus. I don't ever remember a time in my life where I didn't believe in Jesus. And I, I loved my family, and I, I was a nice person, and I tried hard to be a good person. And I, I grew up going to church, and I had Christian friends around me. And I'm willing to suggest that if you grew up in the South, at least some of those things were probably true of you also, if not all of them. Most of us, that's been our experience. And yet the truth of the matter is that that does not make me a Christian. None of those things made me a Christian all by themselves. I mean, think back to the scripture today. How John characterizes our relationship with God. John says we know Christ. We love God. We abide in Christ. Those are not abstract terms. Those are deep relationship terms. To know someone, to love someone, to abide in Christ, that's the deepest one of all. You can't just think nice thoughts about Jesus. If you're going to abide in him, what that means is that you have transferred all of your trust and hope into him. To abide in Christ means that we desire him now in a unique way above all other things. He has is, he is taken up prominence in our life as our Lord and Savior, it means we make our home in him and in his grace. Like, I'm going to firmly set my feet, my life, upon Jesus Christ, and he now takes up residence in our hearts. That's what abide means. And if I only have close proximity to Christianity, then these these new realities are not going to be true. I'm not going to find them in my heart, and they're not going to show up in my life. And so, y'all, that's why we have to follow where the evidence leads. If I believe in Jesus, and yet I, I have no desire to submit my life to him in loving obedience, John is telling us today that I don't really know him. If I believe in Jesus, and yet I'm content to just make him one more compartment in my life and among my priorities. He's in there somewhere, but he's not, he's not dominant. John tells us today, I don't really know him. And the evidence shows forth that I, I'm, I'm paying lip service ultimately to God, but I don't know and love and abide in Christ. And as hard as that may be for us to examine, to be revealed, I want to say to you, it was the very best day of my life when that happened. The best day of my life was the day that I finally came to terms with my wrong assumptions. I assumed that my close proximity to Christianity made me a Christian. And of course, I was wrong. And God graciously revealed his son to me, and I trusted him from the heart, and I received him. And because God was patient and merciful with me, I now know him. And I received that as a gift of his grace. 
And y'all, I just want to say, if, if you look into your own life and the fruit, the evidence that John brings to the table, if it's not present, this could be the best day of your life, not the worst. Because the grace of Jesus is always present and fresh on the table for us. He's always calling people to himself in genuine faith that we might leave proximity behind and come to the real thing, to know and love and even abide in Christ. We receive it by faith, and perhaps today you will. And here's how. I mean, I, I saved these verses for us till the end, uh, and it's funny because they really come in the same breath of what we're studying today. How do we get genuine faith? How do we, how do we come to Christ in a, in a real way so that the fruit might show itself in our lives? John actually tells us that right before what we read, and that's why I saved it. I didn't want to spoil it too early. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the verses that immediately precede our scripture today. This is the heart, the essence of what it means to be a Christian. John says to us, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John's heart is for our holiness, our obedience. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. What is John telling us right there? Y'all, propitiation, that's a big word, but it means atoning sacrifice. What it means is that God has a righteous and just wrath, an anger towards sin that must be satisfied. God will never sweep sin under the rug. He is too good to do it. And sin brings about his wrath. He hates evil and he will punish it. Well, propitiation means that the righteous wrath of God towards sin has been satisfied once and for all, satisfied. Not by punishing us for our sins. That's what we deserved. But Jesus Christ came to stand in the gap. Jesus Christ took our place and has become the propitiation. He has satisfied God's righteousness for sin in himself. That means that God's perfect justice has been met. It's been fulfilled forever, not by punishing us, but by putting our sin on Christ so that when Jesus died, he died for us. And he was able to die for us, John says, because he is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the true, sinless, perfect one who is able to be the sacrifice for sinners. Now, this is the amazing truth of the gospel. This is what makes it good news. The just died for the unjust. The righteous one died for the unrighteous. He has satisfied God's righteousness for us so that we might now be forgiven. And this is why John calls Jesus our advocate. Isn't that a great word, a great title for Christ? Our advocate? That's a word that means somebody stands on your behalf. They stand for you. They are 
there to support you and defend you, to plead your case. If Jesus is your advocate, present tense, right this moment, that means that even when you sin, God looks upon you not as a dirty sinner. Why do I even bother? God never looks at you that way. Because God looks at us through his son, Jesus Christ, our advocate. And Jesus is always and forever declaring over us forgiven, paid for, purchased, saved, his blood for us. And he is perpetually standing now for you all the time so that when God looks upon us, he sees the finished work of Jesus Christ, the perfect work. And God is now for you, never against you, thanks to his son, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Do we see why the Apostle Paul back in Romans 8 says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? See, this is what it means to be a Christian. And y'all, as we close, I want to say this to all of us. Maybe you are a Christian, but you're looking at today's scripture and you're thinking, my goodness, the evidence is so lacking. I mean, the the fruit is so, is is just dried up. I don't feel like I've I've done what I'm supposed to do. And and maybe you're you're despairing over whether, and am I really a, a child of God after all? And I want to say this to all of us, anybody who's watching right now. The goal of John's diagnostic test is not for you and I to become obsessive and fearful and despairing, always looking at our activities day by day and thinking, did I do enough today? I mean, as if God might look at me at the end of the day and say, okay, Kyle, you had 51% good stuff, 49% bad. You just made it. You just made it. Good luck tomorrow. No, that's, y'all, that is self-obsession. And if you do that, if, if we look at the fruit, the evidence in that kind of way, then we will, we will always be despairing. We will never feel like we've lived up to the worthiness of God and all his righteousness. That's not the point, and that's not what we're meant to do here. When we talk about the evidence of faith, it's not something we manufacture on our own. The evidence of faith is ultimately the work of God in the same way that faith itself, that salvation itself, is God's work. So let me say this again as clearly as I can. You're not a Christian because you mustered up enough obedience for God to accept you. You are a Christian because Jesus was obedient on your behalf for you going to the cross to save you. His obedience saves you, not yours. Nor are you a Christian because you've mustered up enough love for God. And now you finally loved God enough for God to let you in. Now, if you are a Christian, it's because God loved you and sent his son for you while you were yet a sinner. And so when we talk about the fruit, the evidence, it does not come from us fixating on our activities to make sure we're measuring up, y'all, that, is, that will ultimately lead to legalism and rule-keeping, and we will take our eyes off of Jesus. No, we will only bear the fruit that God desires. We will only live a life that reflects genuine faith if our eyes are fixed on the object of our faith. 
not constantly looking in the mirror, not constantly weighing out the scales to see how we're doing, but looking always to Jesus, looking always to Christ. Y'all, if we fix our eyes on Jesus, if we devote our hearts to him, we will show forth genuine faith. Jesus said so. In John 15, Jesus says, If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So y'all, if you don't feel fruitful as you ought to be today, if you're humbled down to the ground today by what we've read, good. We should live in humility. We should recognize what we are apart from Christ. But with Christ, in Christ, truly everything has changed. And if we receive him and trust him and devote ourselves to him, we will walk in loving obedience. We will desire to submit ourselves to him so that good fruit might come. We will make him increasingly the center of all our life and affection because that's who he is and that's what he deserves. If we will trust him today, and ask him to do what only he can do in our hearts and lives, then according to his grace, he will do it. God is at work in you, Paul said, to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And so let's fix our eyes today, not on ourselves, but on the one who loved us first. Would you pray with me? Father, we are today, I am, humbled. Lord, I I know when I look at my own life, I don't see the kind of obedience that you deserve and that you call me to. I know that my love for you, Lord, has not measured up. It's not been enough. I I pray, Lord, that we'd all be honest enough to acknowledge that. None of us just flies right through this, this, uh, test that John gives us. And I do pray, Lord, for some of us that if we, are, if we take a close look at our lives and, and the fruit of our lives, or perhaps the lack of fruit, that we might see that we do need to return to the beginning, to the source, and, and receive Christ. And Lord, I pray that that will be uh, w- with great celebration that you have brought us to yourself and saved us. But Lord, for others of us, we we know you, and yet we feel so deficient. And and Father, in that case, I, I pray ultimately for the same thing. I pray, Lord, that we would look to the source, that we would look to Christ, not just to ourselves. We have nothing to earn from you. You've declared it. Jesus is our advocate in all the ways that we sin and fall short. He stands for us. And Father, because that is true, Lord, let us fix our eyes not on how we're doing day by day and obsessing over whether we're good enough. We were never good enough. Christ is our hope. He is our salvation. He is our life. Let it be that we would fix our eyes on him 
on him and abide in him and bear good fruit that shows forth sincere love for our Savior. So, Father, I pray that you would bear the good fruit that you desire in our hearts and that we would delight to, to participate, that we, Lord, would be, um, that we would have no greater desire than for our lives to show forth that we are truly his and that there is no greater treasure for us than him. Let us lovingly obey him. And, Lord, um, delight that he is not merely our teacher, he is our Savior. And so we have everything we need forevermore in Christ. And it's in his awesome, powerful name we pray these things today. Amen.